Isabel Hagen. Give me a name. Paul Hindemith. Welcome to Give Me a Name, where a guest presents me, Ben Kirschenbaum, with a dead historical figure they find interesting, and we discuss. You're listening to Hindemith's Sonata for Piano and Viola, Opus 11, Number 4. Catchy song title. Paul Hindemith was a very famous German... Very famous? Are we now not as famous? But for the time... Amongst musicians, he's still very famous. Like classical musicians, he's very respected. His music's, you know, played a lot in schools and studied and all of that. Uh, And certainly for the time, he was a big deal. Yeah, I would say. At certain points, I think he, he rose. And I don't... I don't know, he's interesting because... I don't think he's like as popular as some of his contemporaries. You know, like you hear about Stravinsky mm-hmm. a lot, or maybe I don't know. I, I I feel like he's someone who's brought up more in the mainstream. If I think of early twentieth century classical music, the two names that come to mind for me is Stravinsky and uh, Schoenberg. Yes, yeah. So Hindemith, I, you know, he's right right up there, but in terms of like people on the street knowing his name, I'd say a little less. And sure. During the time, maybe a little less popular for so, reasons we can get into. <laughs> absolutely. So he was born uh, in Hanau, Germany, near Frankfurt on November 16th, 1895. Poor upbringing, and his dad was a painter slash decorator. And from most of my reading, it seems like he's one of these child prodigies you know he had an artistic upbringing right but he seemed like a pretty pretty smart guy through and through he's composing (laughs) shit at like 10 years old and it's one of those sort of stories right but was that also just because like back then there was nothing to do as a kid and like everyone was just kind of like composing because you know (laughs) (laughs) maybe (laughs) i just feel like kids were like just making shit (laughs) i guess that's true do you think that that's like a pre-ipad kind of thing where people i i feel like that's a nostalgia where like an older person would be like, ah, oh, these kids with their iPads back in the old days, they were writing novels today. Right, you know? but most kids were still just like playing with dirt. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, sure. So he learns the violin, the viola pretty early on. And as I said, he's composing music. He becomes a pretty big deal sort of early on, working his way up to the Frankfurt Opera Orchestra. He becomes the concert master in 1916 there, which sounds big. Yeah, so that means you're the first violin you're the first chair of the first violin section. That person serves as the concertmaster. You kind of are leading the orchestra second in command from the conductor. And so he accomplishes this when he's like 20, 21. Would that be a pretty big thing now? It would be even bigger now at 21 because I feel like people accomplished things way earlier back, you know, because people had shorter life. So, well, this isn't that long ago. But yeah, right. that's a big deal, I would say. Right. So Definitely. he's already making his way up. Then uh, he does get conscripted into World War One. In 1917, his dad actually dies in World War One. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm. And he plays the bass drum in the regiment band and also forms a string quartet all d- during the war, which I've never really heard of before in terms of just like continuing your music career as a brutal war is going on. Isn't that interesting? Like, where did they find the time? <laughs> You know, like, I understand playing in the band. I like the idea that also he got, like, demoted to bass drum. Like, he's this, like, brilliant violinist slash violist. And then they're just like, no, hit this thing. You're going to just do that. But he also managed to found found a string quartet, which I don't know, like, the workings of that or how maybe he really wasn't at battle that much. So but- he 
does he is in battle a little bit because he almost dies during a, a grenade attack. But for the most part, maybe he's. I mean, I almost picture him that like like you know at the end of Titanic, like just <laughs> while all this right. awful shit is going on, he's <laughs> playing with his quartet. Right. But. Yeah, so he was able to continue performing music even during the one year, two years that he's at war. So in 1921, after the war, he founds the Amar Quartet, where he's playing the viola. And this is like a very famous quartet. His brother is also part of it, and he sort of tours Europe. So again, his career is going well. Sure. And he's conducting music, he's playing the viola. And one thing that becomes pretty influential for, I think, Tindemith is that he is one of the first composers to really feature the viola or focus on the viola during his music. Yes. So he played the viola. So he wrote a lot of music that he would perform himself. And I don't know, I guess, you know, you go back to Mozart. Mozart played the viola and he would write a viola quintet. So that's where you have the string quartet, which is two violins, viola, cello, and then an extra viola. They call it a viola quintet. It's not five violists. And Mozart would make the second viola part really easy so that he could play it because I guess he wasn't that good of a violist. Oh, okay. Uh, So that's like when I think of someone writing for themselves, like, for viola, that's the first thing I think of. But Hindemith was writing like concertos for himself where he's the featured soloist. And yeah, the viola didn't get a lot of solo repertoire until more in the 20th century. And so I feel like I probably should have asked this five minutes ago, but your history with the viola, your history with classical music in general. So uh, you you are a violist, correct? I'm a professional violist. Right. I started on violin when I was five. When I was 10, I switched to viola. Had a crush on a guy who played viola. That's the short version of it. Oh, so uh, it wasn't the sound. No. Well, and then when I started playing, I liked being a you know team player, being in the middle, middle voice. Uh, but then when you're in school, you end up playing a lot of Hindemith because there aren't you need you, you want solo pieces to play so that you can work on your chops. And so violists play a ton of Hindemith, even if they don't particularly like his music. And you know it's more atonal than than a lot of other composers you might play and so it's this funny relationship violists have with Hindemith kind of love hate sometimes (laughs) so I'll ask two questions about that first referring to the guy you had a crush on is it were you playing the viola because you spend more time with your fellow violists like if you were a violinist and he played viola would you not see him as much uh so he was actually much older he was a friend of my older brothers so it wasn't like we were gonna get to like play together necessarily I just kind of wanted to be like him more, more in that vein. <laughs> Got it. Uh, second question, having nothing to do with the guy. Uh-huh. Atonal music. Uh, what exactly is does atonal mean as opposed to tonal? And I know that that might be a very vague question. Yeah, atonal is kind of one of those words that's like classical music where it's used very broadly, but it can mean different things. Like when we say classical music, there's technically the classical era, which is only up through like Mozart. And then you get to like Brahms and that's romantic. But we kind of call all this instrumental, you know, European concert music, classical music, Mm. you know. So the same thing with atonal. I mean, broadly, it's just any music that doesn't sound like pretty i mean that's that's not a good way to put it because there's like tonal not pretty music but it's like the textures if anything sounds dissonant at all like so there's music is based on like intervals right and some intervals when you play them like a major third 
this is getting very niche, but no, please. <laughs> if no. you play like a major third, it sounds very pretty. It's just like, like those two notes together will be very beautiful played together, like standard harmony. Whereas if you like have a minor second, which is just like, if you play those two notes together, it'll like really clash in your ear. Mm-hmm. And there's an interval called the tritone, which is either an augmented fourth or a diminished fifth. The number is meaning the number of steps between the two notes. And it was the tritone was banned for a while because it was seen as the devil's chord. Mm. Because when you play it together, it sounds very dissonant. And the rise of this kind of music would be early 20th century. Those names that we said before, Stravinsky and Schoenberg, would be... So Schoenberg really, I guess, is seen as one of the sort of forerunners of atonal music. Yeah, so sh- it's pronounced Schoenberg, which... Oh, which, I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, I just don't <laughs> want to sound like a douche when I then say Schoenberg, uh, <laughs> but I have to. Um, it's ah, fuck, I've said it so many times already. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm not a very good editor. Um, yeah. No, it's great. It'll add to the... Why, why would you know how it's... Anyway, um, so Schoenberg is interesting because he first wrote very tonal music. He has a string quartet in D major. His first string quartet, very beautiful. Uh, Then he got to more like expressionist period, sort of a little dissonance here and there, a little more colorful, maybe along more the veins of you'd hear like Hindemith music. Then he founded the 12-tone system, which is like extremely dissonant. The idea is that like no one note is like repeated until all the tones are played. So it lends itself to this very, very dissonant kind of to a lot of people would sound ugly music. Interesting. So Schoenberg had like levels of different atonality. And it almost sounds a little bit like to go to a different art form, Picasso's development in painting, right? He starts off like Picasso can paint normal if he right, wants to. Right, right. He could paint like a tree. <laughs> yeah, no, he can do it. He's classically trained. <laughs> yeah. But then he goes through these different periods that end up with cubism, end up with the, you know, 20 heads or whatever. But kind of a process where you start off, you you learn the rules before you break them. Exactly. Yeah. So atonal, that's a great uh, analogy. It's kind of just like abstract painting, atonal music. And pretty much the same time period. Yeah. Modernist right. stuff. Right. So going back to Hindemith just for a second, he is seen as a one of the leaders of, or one of the proponents of a thing called new objectivity mm-hmm. in music which is sort of a reaction to expressionism, which is a word that you mentioned already. Right. And is expressionism kind of, because I think of expressionism with like, paint again, parallels to like painting and kind of like very angsty internal paintings. Like I think a forerunner for expressionism in painting was Munch and like the scream. So like mm. these disturbing like internal things. Right. Would it, is there like a parallel there with music kind of? I think definitely. I mean, I'm not a super expert on like, exactly the expressionist period but to me it seems like yeah very like without structure just kind of high emotional intensity I think there's there can be some more dissonance in there than like the earlier tonal stuff people might have been hearing you know very yeah just like very overdone It's, it's sort of what what the name sounds like and then this new objectivity which I mean Hindemith kind of went back and forth he really dabbled in not dabbled you know committed to a lot of different styles throughout uh his career but it's just the new objectivity it's so funny because it's like this idea of like practicality but in music in art it's like there's nothing practical about music so it's just like this funny idea to me yeah Um, and he like wanted everyone to be able to play music like it's more important to play music and he would like famously write entire songs or concertos very briefly 
Oh, you mean like on short notice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He he wrote the trower music for the death of King George V, like the day after he died and premiered it that night. Like he heard that the king died, wrote the piece for solo viola. I don't remember if he premiered it or if another violist premiered it, like actually played the music. But yeah, like that night they played the piece. That's almost like a comedian making up like a timely joke or something like that. Just exactly, just harder. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably a little harder because <laughs> it's like liner. a whole. It was like a fully orchestrated, like you know, full string orchestra and solo viola part. That's insane. Um, yeah, so he. I think that's that's something that makes him really interesting to me is that he was so actively involved in his compositions. He would play them or he would get everyone, you know, he seemed like he was just like a guy who kind of made shit happen. Right. You know, kind of a hustler, you know? (laughs) That's always admirable. So this is all the stuff when he's like playing with new objectivity, but also doing a little bit of expressionism, which is new objectivity is a reaction to expression. So he's doing everything basically. Yeah. And this is, for the historical backdrop, is during the 1920s in Germany during the Weimar Republic. So after World War One, the Weimar Republic takes over in Germany. It is a very heavily criticized government that is eventually going to be taken over by Hitler in the early 30s. But there's this period of what ends up being very temporary government, and it's also a period of a lot of sort of artistic avant-garde you know movements going on or like i think of like the musical cabaret where it's like a lot of sexual stuff a lot of just weird surreal things in all sorts of different mediums of art including music Mm -hmm. and schoenberg uh schoenberg fuck and i said his name (laughs) wrong i got i said the wrong name and incorrectly (laughs) hindemith (laughs) um is a part of this and he is at least like associated with a lot of these different weird forms of music and he participates in like different operas different uh, movies and the only reason why i mention all this stuff is because in the 30s when hitler does come to power this stuff's gonna bite him in the ass right a lot of his stuff got burned or destroyed big time so nazis come to power hitler is becomes chancellor in 1933 as you said there's nazi book burnings and that has to do with book burnings of a lot of different things you know jewish authors obviously go out the window in a second but also anything that's like seen as communist or anti-german or whatever that's going to go out the window and also you have different pieces of art being tossed and again, if it's a Jewish artist, then that's almost like the easy, like that's got to go like right. immediately. But then with so many forms of art, and I think music is an extreme example of this, it's like, what does it mean to be anti-German? What does it mean to be like hurting the German cause? In music, you mean? or Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think it's like questions that the Nazis were trying to kind of grapple with. And of course, it's going to end up being pretty random. Right, like it probably just comes down to like, do they like how it sounded? Hundred <laughs> like, percent. We like this one. So and th- <laughs> very there was, nice. There was specifically a thing <laughs> with music called "Work Toward the Fuhrer," and what that basically means is, unless Hitler has given his very direct opinion on something, the people around him, the leader of propaganda, Goebbels, and then there's this other guy, Alfred Rosenberg, are the two kind of like main leaders. They've got a somewhat hypothesize would Hitler like this right. or would he not like this <laughs> and like in the end would Hitler even get to hear it like Sometimes. does it even reach him you know? Well, you know like Hitler obviously was a painter right. and has very strong opinions on art he also had really strong opinions on music like he's obsessed with Wagner right well Wagner was a notorious anti-semite yeah I think he probably also agreed <laughs> yeah. with a lot of his <laughs> opinions yeah 
So and that yeah. and just a horrible person in general. hundred percent. Wagner was the worst. Yeah, <laughs> beautiful th- composer though. Beautiful music. Oh so. yeah, the <laughs> Valkyries, right? Flight of the Valkyries. Yeah. Uh, Tristan and Isolde, that whole thing, right? You know. But I, son of a bitch, I Terrible. mean, like, just really an awful human. Yeah, being. I mean, the it, that's like one of the earlier, like, do you separate the artist from the artist, art from the artwork kind of arguments, you know? Right. Like now we do it with you know Woody Allen and all that shit. Sure. So. <laughs> but for Hitler, that wasn't a question at all. For yeah. Hitler, yeah. the <laughs> politics was like, oh my god, Andy right. agreed with me on everything. That's yeah, great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Wagner would be canceled now for sure. Yes. Yeah. So. Wagner would be canceled now, but someone like Hindemith would be canceled during the Nazi era, or at least eventually. Right. And so there is a thing that's established in 1933 called the Reich Chamber of Culture, and it's headed by Joseph Goebbels, who is also the head of propaganda for the Nazis. It is essentially an organization that determines whether you can be an artist in Nazi Germany Mm -hmm. and you have to apply and if you don't make it then you cannot make your music you cannot make your art and what the Nazis are going after the term for it is degenerate art that's the word they use degenerate and it's anything that is un-German Jewish or communist in nature and there's all these specific rules about what counts and what doesn't count in music again Jewish composers go out the window Felix Mendelssohn no way Gustav Mahler no way all these things are basically dismissed from the general public. One thing that I found interesting about Goebbels is that he also, though, along with getting rid of a lot of music, was a big believer that music is important in terms of like riling up people. Mm. And he uses different forms of the radio in order to allow Germans to hear, quote unquote, the right music. Right, right. Yeah, using music kind of to to radicalize people and yeah. it's it's funny though because it's like it's not like music with words in it right it's just like particular sounds i think that, it's a mix but yeah okay like very patriotic sounds or... and we totally do that all the time i mean right it's also just regular music can like get at you emotionally oh yeah so you just sort of i mean we do that in movies we manipulate people's emotions with whatever music we're using for the scene you know sure i wouldn't you could put like different music over a certain scene and make people feel much different about it a hundred percent yeah, Jaws without the John Williams score is a different movie. Right. It's just funny. We, we don't really see that like from politicians these days. They're not like using music anyway because it's all so like spread out and there's just too much out there. There's not like a channel for them to like play us stuff for as sure. much like the radio. You know, The only equivalent I can think of is like if there's a big campaign for a politician and they always end with, you know, born in the usa or like something that's like trying to get the people going yeah well i mean you know they would you'd see like footage of trump's rallies on msnbc you know and they're like showing he's playing what songs was he playing like like i don't know we are the champions and like yeah a lot of stuff i mean that's also the thing this happened with trump and it's happened with other politicians where then the musician is like please don't use my music to help you out (laughs) right so In any case, the Germans, Goebbels, comes up with these different rules for what is anti-German, what has, quote-unquote, Jewish influence or communist influence to it. They reject jazz, and they definitely reject, as we said before, anything that is atonal. Mm -hmm. That's not pleasing to Hitler and not pleasing to the Nazis in general. Right. So when it comes to Hindemith, he is not dismissed immediately— because he's a very, very prominent 
German composer. And all of this is about German pride and German nationalism and stuff. So at first, Goebbels and other Nazis see it as possible for Hindemith to be the opposite of an outcast, for him to actually be one of the main sort of leaders of Nazi music. Mm-hmm. That takes a turn because Hitler, in particular, views some of the early works by Hindemith as problematic. One in particular is a thing called News of the Day, which was an opera, and in it, there's a soprano who sings naked in a bathtub. Oh, and that was what was deemed problematic? And Hitler's like, that's too much for me. It's not German. Yeah, no, that's not. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a bunch of these, like, different weird things, I guess weird, I guess, from modern standpoint, that Hindemith participates in. Also, two things. Hindemith associated with a lot of Jews and worked with a lot of Jews in the 20s, and he's married to a half-Jew. Right. So those things worked against him in the eyes of the Nazis. It's interesting that he wasn't um, just totally cast off. You know, like, what do you think... What do you think was, like, the thing that kept him sort of in the running? I mean, I I think a lot of... He has, like, really beautiful moments in a lot of his music. It's, like, very much, like really grotesque and then all of a sudden there's like this gorgeous melody that comes out and I wonder if that had anything to do with it it's a huge part of it I think he also made a real point he associates with the famous playwright Brecht Mm -hmm. for a little while and after he does a collaboration with Brecht he was like that was way too weird I'm gonna become the opposite of that and especially in the early 30s like around 1930 he makes a point of rejecting the kind of music that he was a big part of in the 20s Mm. and so his music does become more what the Nazis would like. Right. (laughs) More Nazi friendly. (laughs) It's more Nazi friendly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. His, his music is so, I I feel like this is just a theory I have, but because his music is kind of, it's hard to pinpoint his style a lot of the time because he does kind of span a lot of different, like even just from work to work, like it's different. Some of it's like very, very academic and sort of rigid and, and more based on like contrapuntal harmony. And then there's some stuff that's very lush and beautiful. And I think maybe he's like not brand, he, he's not brandable in a way. Mm. And in modern day, you know, you need to have a brand. Like, I feel like sometimes it's harder to remember and celebrate people if they were a little more like all over the place with sure. their, I might be misspeaking. Maybe someone would argue that he does have a very defined style, but. Well, I think um, that, it's such an interesting question in terms of art in general, right? Because you have those two things playing the entire time where it's like you have to be very specific and you have to be identifiable. At the same time, we value range. Right. right. So <laughs> that fi- balancing those two things, I think, is like, I think for any artist, including a musician, has got to be the hardest thing. Yes, it's finding that line for sure. But I also think of it in terms of like comedians. Have you ever heard the thing of the great comedians are the easiest to imitate? Mm. I haven't heard that, but that makes sense. Like someone like, you know, whether you're a fan of Seinfeld or not, like everyone apparently when he started breaking in the 80s was doing a Seinfeld. Right, right. Because it just gets in your head, the intonation and the way he delivers lines and the, you know, kind of observational stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. But does that make for the most interesting artist, you know, if their style is so clear and Mm. just you know what to expect every time kind of like oh this is how Seinfeld would talk about this like we could all pick an item and make a Seinfeldian joke about it right and just put on the voice and just be like what's the deal with right (laughs) MacBook Air right right I just looked at a MacBook Air Um, (laughs) but that's about the extent of my Seinfeld invitation so there's sort of a turning point in the mid-30s when Hindemith goes from 
someone who the Nazis think might be helpful to them to an outcast. And in 1934, there is a play or an opera that Hindemith is writing that he's trying to put on called Mathis de de Mahler, Mm -hmm. which is Mathis the painter, basically. And it gets rejected in a lot of ways because even though the music, like we said, is seen as more Nazi-friendly, the general kind of plot of the story is that it's like a painter or an artist who is trying to rip off the chains of like politics getting in the way of him making pure art. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of Nazi leaders saw that as implying that Hindemith was rebelling against the restraints of Nazi Germany. Right. It was a rebellious story packaged nicely in (laughs) Nazi-friendly language. (laughs) I think that that's at least what they viewed it as. Right. And so it gets a lot of, you know, kind of, rejection from a lot of people. Joseph Goebbels calls Hindemith an atonal noisemaker. <laughs> Again, though, the atonal part probably referring to stuff that he had made five years earlier. Right. So, or like little parts of, th- I mean, there's like, he, right. he does have like sections of everything has some sort of, like even in Trower music, the piece written for King George V, it's death. Like it's so beautiful and sad. And there's one part that's kind of a little more like all of a sudden it's like, ah, there he is, you know. He's- <laughs> <laughs> right. That he can't just like totally be what you want. Yeah, I don't know. It seems... Do you like that about him? I think that's interesting. I I, I do like it about him. I think there's something... It's the fact that all his music, it it sort of has like a human quality to it. At the end of the day, I I feel very like, oh, there's still like a human behind all of this. Mm. That's just my personal feeling about it. That's cool. And do you think that that's pretty unique for a lot of the other composers that we were talking about from around the same time and place? I think maybe for for when you're going into the more like atonal world, it is because, you know, like the 12 tones, like Schoenberg, like I just don't find, I mean, it's just much more subtle, any kind of like express like feeling you're going to get from that music someone would argue with me a a real Schoenberg fanatic but but to me Hindemith really toes the line between like interesting complexity and then just like fucking human melodies like beautiful stuff do you ever feel that like some of these artists are kind of weird for weirdness's sake kind of thing oh yeah and I mean that's always happening I mean now especially composers nowadays I play new music sometimes written yesterday and I'm just like what the fuck is this you know like (laughs) you're just trying to be avant-garde you know and I'm sure that was happening back then too right and just to also kind of like just break the rules for the sake of breaking the rules exactly and you have world war one going on and then the depressive nature of post-war world and then i said depressive then the depression and so i think that there's a lot of reason to be sort of like you know just trying to break down any kind of structure right right and and hindemith he is criticized i think for being too academic Mm-hmm. But I also, I don't, I, I love discipline. I think like being incredibly disciplined and still making something expressive is like almost the ultimate rebellion. Cause you're just like, I'm going to stay within, I'm still going to make something that's like technically very good and like get to you, you right. know, work within the system. Yeah. 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 So I, I like that as well. And <laughs> so basically this play garners a lot of controversy. There's a conductor named Wilhelm Furtwangler. 
Vertwangler. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not an expert on that name, but I have played it. It's pronounced Schoenberg. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I did play one of his piano quintets, which was a nightmare, but (laughs) um, Vertwanglers, he was also a composer. Got it. And he came to Hindemith's defense in this case, and he writes Mm -hmm. like a letter in a newspaper saying that defending Hindemith, one problem with his defense is that his defense also seems like it's kind of going against just Nazi control in general. So it kind of even works against Hindemith, even though it's trying to support Hindemith. Mm -hmm. And this is all 1934, 1935 time period. By 1936, Hindemith is banned in, or his music is banned, sorry. He doesn't actually leave until a little later. But his music is banned in Nazi Germany. And he's even part in 1938 of what's called the Degenerate Music Exhibit. So basically what the Nazis would do led by Hans Severus Ziegler would, they did this in like regular art too, where they would put on an exhibition of all of the art you're not supposed to look at. That's so ironic. (laughs) Yeah. It's like supposed to humiliate them, but actually you're just, it's like all press is good press. You're giving them a platform. (laughs) Plus if it's really good, people are looking at it and they're supposed to go, basically it's like there to explain to you that this is the worst thing in the world. Right. But then you go and like, let's say you go to the music one and you listen to Stravinsky and you really like him. Right. Then... It really defeated the purpose. It's almost like your parents being like, don't do drugs. Like, right. don't do heroin. It, don't do that. Like, just naming all the different things they could do, yes. you know? I guess it's <laughs> even like, further, though. It's yeah. like them giving you the drugs. Right, and being right. like, yeah. Here, like, smoke this entire pack of cigarettes yeah. and don't do it again. Yeah, <laughs> right. You see that person yeah. who's high and having the time of their life? Yeah. Don't do that. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, eventually, Hindemith is going to immigrate. He spent some time in Turkey. He's also known, by the way, as like one of the great art uh, music teachers. Mm. So in addition to being a composer, in addition to being a musician himself, he also is like famous for teaching. And he eventually will immigrate to the United States and he teaches at Yale and becomes an American citizen eventually in 1946 and then returns to Europe in 1953 and stays spent some time in Switzerland and he's composing pretty much until the day he dies. He dies at the age of 68 on December 28th, 1963 from pancreatitis in Germany again, in Frankfurt. Yeah, I, I always like hearing when people just like die doing their art, you know? It's like they really liked, they really liked what they were doing. He mm-hmm. really cared about his work and, you know, it doesn't seem like he was, and the fact that he was also a teacher, like he just loved the whole I don't know anything about his personality, but it seems like he really loved music in general, not just like in it for the fame kind of thing. Yeah, and it also seems like, so his whole, obviously we focused the most on his life with regards to the Nazis Mm -hmm. and in the 30s and how his time in the 20s had an effect on his life in the 30s. But I think that he seemed to be a kind of apolitical guy who wanted to just make art. Yeah, and was willing to make a lot of compromises that we view now as pretty shitty in order to do that. Like he tried, he signed a like thing of, of support for Hitler, like a oh, vow of support for Hitler. I didn't know that. Yeah, Damn. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff there where it's like, he doesn't seem like a full-blown Nazi, but he does seem like someone who is very much looking out for himself. Right, right. Mm, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's so Hindemith. He would do that. No. Um, yeah, but I do think he he really was just interested in making art and cared about 
liking what he was doing. And there's, I don't know if you read about his symphonic metamorphosis, which is, I think maybe one of his most famous pieces. Sure. It's one of the first one that comes out. Yeah. And it was originally this choreographer, I think Massenet approached Hindemith and said like, Hey, can we arrange these pieces by Weber, not Webern? often confused Weber was this Carl Maria von Weber uh I was a do not composer know. you know uh in the classical period Got it. uh okay. can you arrange these pieces for my ballet company and and Hindemith kind of made them his own and the choreographer was like I don't really like this can we and I think the project kind of fell through and then Hindemith went and saw a ballet by this choreographer and didn't like it anyway so he took what he had done and like made this whole other piece that he that he wanted to which became symphonic metamorphosis and that was later choreographed by a different ballet company so he really like stuck to his i feel like he had some artistic integrity at least sure. maybe he doesn't have political integrity <laughs> but that that to me showed um commitment to you know just really his own voice and Right. That kind of thing. So this is a question that I ask pretty much every episode. So why did you choose Hindemith? Well, I'm not, you said pick someone you knew a lot about, and <laughs> I don't know a lot about many people. <laughs> I'm pretty pretty uh, knowledgeless. But I was like, well, I know a lot of, a fair amount about Hindemith, and I've played a lot of his music being a violist. Mm-hmm. And I have like this weird obsession with him. And I, it's, it's almost become like a parody of itself. Right. But I think I really do enjoy playing. A lot of his music is very idiomatic for the instrument of the viola. Uh, because he played it himself a lot of composers don't play the instrument they're writing for so you're playing something and you're like well this doesn't really fall well on the instrument it's really hard to do right and Hindemith music although it's not all easy once you get it it works because he played it he played all his music for, for the viola at least would you say that there's a certain amount of like and I guess this can be applied to any instrument like viola pride Oh, sure. Yeah, there's definitely viola. I mean, I don't know a lot of other violists who are like obsessed with him in the way I am, but there's definitely like viola pride. And and something else about him is that he wrote a solo piece for pretty much every instrument because the viola, that's one instrument that doesn't have a lot of solo music written for it. Also, the bassoon, the tube. There's like a Hindemith bassoon sonata. I think there's like a tuba piece. Like he wrote something for every instrument. Right. So, so he, was, he was for the so little guy. It's, he's, yeah. yeah, he's for the little guy. He was sort of of the, I feel like in that way, of the people, but you know, also maybe not. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I guess on the <laughs> symbolic level. Um, is there, so viola, first of all, I, I guess I should have asked this at the beginning. <laughs> what is a viola? What is? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's like a violin, but just a little bigger. You still play it like this. So it, almost hard to differentiate if you're playing a violin or a viola unless you know. It's like the middle child. You get violin, viola, cello, double bass, the middle voice. Right. And what would be the reason then, or if there is one, why the viola would become would, would be less popular for like uh, music pieces that focus on it? I'm not an expert on this, but my, my hunch is that the viola was probably created as an inner voice like to they probably had more of like the violin type instrument these instruments have evolved over time but the violin was sort of this instrument that then they wanted supporting instruments so they made like a lower like a bass violin you know so it it probably just wasn't created with the intention of being a solo instrument to begin with it wasn't like we hate this instrument no one (laughs) no one write for it you know (laughs) 
I honestly, that's just my theory, mm-hmm. but it's probably something like that. And would you say that it's harder to, <laughs> just a, this is more of a modern question. Is it harder to make it as a violist as opposed to a violinist or vice versa? I think it's it's easier in a lot of ways because fewer people, and this is changing, there are a lot of violists now, but right. even when I was 10, mm-hmm. everyone, my music school was like, oh my God, do you play the viola? We need a violist in this chamber of group. Course. So I yeah. was high in demand. <laughs> it's less competitive. It's just less competitive than the violin. So it's easier in that sense but like being a solo violist there are fewer of them but there's also less of a need for it because there aren't that many viola concertos and a lot of it's like by Hindemith which is not going to be like a crowd favorite right you know (laughs) who would be the other people other than Hindemith that would kind of focus on the viola uh there's the famous Walton viola concerto premiered by Hindemith Mm -hmm. uh William Walton wrote a concerto uh there's also a Stamitz concerto which is he's a more classical period composer so that's like one early piece for the viola by Stamitz there's Bartok Bartok was a 20th century composer also yeah yeah, he also focused on folk music which Hindemith did incorporate in a lot of his stuff a lot of his pieces like his one of his most famous viola concertos Der Schwanendreher is based around folk music and Bartok did the same thing and he wrote a viola concerto that he died before he finished so there are different versions of the piece finished by different people (laughs) would any of these people be influenced also by like jazz particularly american jazz the only reason why i mention is because jazz was kind of pointed out by the nazis as one of the things to avoid right well i know hindemith i think has said he was influenced by jazz like rhythmically at least and and you can hear in some of his pieces there's like this sort of repetitive rhythm that he claims is influenced by jazz right Uh, i don't know about bartok i wouldn't i wouldn't see why not but yeah yeah (laughs) just to go back to hindemith for a second one of the things that i find very sort of modern about his story is the idea that, and obviously all the details are changed and everything, the idea that you can be kind of canceled for something that you did a decade before. Uh Uh-huh. Which, obviously all the details are changed in terms of, you know, we're talking about Nazi Germany canceling things and and, and all that stuff. But that's the one thing while I was reading all the stuff about Hindemith where I was like, oh, wow, like any sort of artist, and especially now with social media, is and stuff if something's out there it doesn't really matter if you've changed since then and it was still the same it's interesting reading history and being like oh that happened back then too of course in a little different way but it's always it's always this kind of like interesting like who feeling like wow that was going on back then too people also like hated shit and like (laughs) tried to cancel you know yeah it's just like humans have always been humans (laughs) (laughs) well in any case uh, thank you so much for Teaching me about Paul Hindemith and about this period in music, I found his life story so interesting. And I also just think that his contribution, not only his contribution to music, but just kind of all of the things surrounding his life to be so compelling. Yeah, he also like played in a musical comedy group at some point. Oh, like, yeah, we forgot to mention that. Which was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> and that was kind of a ways to make ends meet, I think, yeah. as he was young and just kind of trying to make it up the ladder in, in German music. Yeah, just totally weird. And like, oh, all right, well. <laughs> Any other fun facts about Hindemith? I think that was my only fun that fact. That was a great that one, That was the, the fun fact <laughs> that we got. <laughs> um, uh, Isabel Hagen, thank you so much for being on. Is there anything, well, you have your podcast? You can check out my podcast, Good Timing with Isabel Hagen, on all the podcast platforms and just follow me on Instagram. Is and it- uh, just a brief description of what that podcast is. Oh, sure. Yeah, the podcast about the creative process. I talk to different musicians and comedians since that's what I am and we discuss the through lines uh between artistic fields and the reality of following our dreams so that's the pitch okay well uh please check out uh isabel's podcast and thank you so much for being on thank you for having me Mm -hmm.